Well, good morning. I can't tell you how excited I am to be here at the Vero Beach Church of Christ this morning for two reasons. The first is this. Uh, I met Darian and Peyton at Oklahoma Christian University. Uh, I first met Darian. She went on an internship. I direct a program called the Center for Global Missions at Oklahoma Christian. And one of the things we do is we send students around the world to do six to eight week mission internships with missionaries around the world. So Darian went to Rwanda. Then later through Darian, I think through Darian, I can't really remember, that I met Peyton, and then Peyton and Darian went to Graz, Austria together, not on an eight-week mission internship, on a four-month mission internship. And then I helped them to go to uh, a country in South Africa. It was formerly called Swaziland, now called Eswatini. And so they're dear friends of mine. I also, Lex never did an internship, unfortunately, but I had Lex in class. So... uh, I've sent Darren and Peyton to Rwanda, Austria, Swaziland, and then we finally sent them as missionaries to Florida. How about that? And we sent Lex as a missionary to Washington, D.C. Can I get an amen to that? All right. I figured that. That was probably not going to laugh. You're probably going to be, yeah, that's right. We need to send Lex there, right? The second reason that I'm really excited to be here is I feel like, even though I haven't uh, met any of you until today, I feel like I know this church. My wife, Kim, who's sitting right down, right down here, her and I and our children, uh, Elijah, Noah, and Bella, were missionaries in Uganda, East Africa, for six years. And our teammates are Mark and Lori Manring, whom this church knows very well. So I texted Mark the other day. I meant to text him several weeks back when I knew I was going to be here, but I'd, I'd forgotten. And I texted him a few days ago. I, guess, I said, guess where I'm going to be preaching this weekend? And he said, well, can I have a hint? Like, what continent are you on? Which is an appropriate question. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to be in Florida. And he went, Vero Beach? And I go, yeah. And he goes, you've got to be kidding me. He goes, I love those people. man." And he said, to tell you guys, hi, and that the people in Michigan are really complaining about the weather right now, all right? We love Mark and Lori, Luke, Connor, Lydia Jane, Tessa, and Miles. They are family. We don't get to see them that much because we're in Oklahoma, and they're in Michigan. But because of our experience and the work we shared in the gospel, they are family. And I know they're family to you guys as well. And I want to say this. Thank you for supporting them. Because we felt that support as well. We considered our work to be all part of the same team. So your support of them was support of us as well. And we thank you for that. So I'm excited to be here today. As my role as director of the Center for Global Missions, some of the things that I do is keep up with trends that are happening around the world. And there's an interesting phenomenon that's happening in Asia, or it's been happening for the past hundred years. Christianity first came to Korea in 1603 by a Korean returning from China who had been in China 
and had studied under a priest and then brought it back to China. But it didn't take root until another Korean student was converted in China and returned home in 1784. And then Christians refused to venerate their ancestors, was what the common practice in Korea. So they were persecuted. Then the first foreign missionary came in 1884, and by 1945, at the end of the uh, Japanese colonization and persecution, Christians were about 350,000 in Korea. After World War II, the church exploded. Reaching 1.2 million Christians by 1965. And then by 1985, there were 10 million Christians. In 2010, there were 15 million Christians out of a population of 48.5 million people. That's in South Korea. 31% of the population is Christian. And so by the 2000s, South Korea, this is the, that's a pretty amazing phenomenon right there. But here's what's even more amazing, is that by the 2000s, South Korea was the second largest missionary sending nation in the world. Now, the United States was number one, but we have, what, 300 million people? South Korea is roughly the size of Kentucky. And per capita, they were the number one mission-sending nation in the world. They sent more people overseas on mission to 175 countries around the world. They were number one. And the only reason they're not number one in just pure numbers is just because of how big the United States is. They kill us per capita. So in 100 years, they went from Christianity being scarce to the second largest foreign mission-sending nation in the world in 100 years. That is a radical You guys have been in the book of Acts. Tracy's been preaching out of the book of Acts. In fact, the church where I preach, we've been in the book of Acts as well. And a few Sundays ago, I was preaching about uh, uh, the story of Saul and his conversion. And Saul shows up at the beginning at Stephen's stoning. Do you remember when Stephen was being stoned? And who was standing there watching he was watching over the clothes of the people while he was being stoned. And he was there giving approval to Stephen stoning. Later in chapter 26, Saul, now Paul, by, by chapter 26, beginning of verse 9, 9, he says this. I too, he's talking to King Agrippa. And he's saying, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when, I, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to the other to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. 
I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Paul, Saul had a mission. And he says, I was zealous. And then at the beginning of chapter 9, it says, meanwhile, beginning of verse 1, it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them to prison in Jerusalem. So this is what Saul's life is about. This is what his vocation is. This is what his mission is. And it's all in service to God, by the way. He thinks he's doing the Lord's work. So then by the time we get to verse 3, it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Then men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he said. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he had seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. And their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how he must suffer many things. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road when you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fall, fell from Saul's eyes, and he began to see. And he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. When we hear this story, we hear this story as a conversion story. Some people call it the Damascus Road story. Now, I, don't, I don't know I, if, if many of us have used this, but some people use this language like, what's your Damascus Road story? How, what's your story of being converted? And usually we think of these kinds of stories, or when we tell conversion stories, as something like this. Man, I was a liar. I was a cheat. I was greedy. I was addicted to this. I was selfish. I wasn't good to my spouse. I wasn't good to my kids. And Jesus changed my life. And those are really, really good stories. 
But what's interesting is that you find in this story and in most stories in the book of Acts is that conversion stories aren't about some moral change primarily. So when we ask for your conversion story, you may, some of us may tell a story about how I was greedy or selfish or I wasn't good to my family, and then God changed my life, and he turned it around. And we're tempted to see this story here in that way. I mean, Saul's not doing good things. He's killing Christians. But that's not what this story is primarily about. Most of the people in the book of Acts that have a conversion, most of the conversion stories in the book of Acts, the people who are converted are good people. Cornelius. If you're in class, we talked about Cornelius. He was a God-fearing man. You have Lydia, the businesswoman in Philippi. You have Ethiopian eunuch. He was a God-fearing person. And some people are good in the way that Saul was good. So Saul was righteous and blameless under the law, and therefore he was somewhat self-righteous. So in Acts 22, verse 3, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, but brought up in this city, I studied under, under uh, Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. And I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Most of the people in the book of Acts that are converted are good people. And I think this story is intended to say Paul or Saul was righteous. At least that's the way he saw himself. And this story is about conversion, but it's not primarily about conversion from one moral behavior to another. And that's what we usually think about conversion. This story is about conversion, but it's not about conversion of moral behavior, although that's really good. The primary point of this story is not a conversion of moral behavior. This is a story about a conversion of vocation. This is a story about a conversion of purpose and mission. In the book of Acts, conversion is almost always connected to a specific calling, specific task, or specific vocation. Conversion in the book of Acts is less about getting one's life together, straightening up and flying right, than it is about being called and sent by God to do his bidding. That's what conversion is in the book of Acts. And so Saul's call does not save the church from persecution because the church continues to be persecuted and Paul goes on to be persecuted. This story is about a conversion in vocation. And it, Saul's not the only one that's converted in this story. There's also a guy named Ananias. Ananias is a righteous guy. But he also gets a vision, like, like Saul does. And can you imagine this vision that he gets? Hey, I want you to go into town. There's a guy named Saul. I want you to go touch his eyes so he could see. 
And Ananias goes, um, excuse me, I don't need, to be, no, no, don't need to be rude here, but you said Saul, right? Yeah, I Saul, that's who I said. You mean Saul, the one who's going around with authorities, with letters from the authorities to arrest Christians, the Saul who is going around and persecuting, yeah, that's the Saul. You mean the Saul that's going around and killing Christians? Yeah, that's the one I mean. You mean the Saul that's going to show up here and who knows what he's going to do? Yes, that's the Saul I mean. It's very clear how Ananias views Saul. Ananias is a righteous person. And when God calls him, it's not a change in moral behavior. He has to see the world differently. It's a change in vocation. Now, he is sent to this guy who's been killing Christians. And you know he has to walk in the room with a little bit of doubt and a little bit of skepticism. Maybe more than a little. And said, God sent me. But I'm not sure I'm supposed to be here. Conversion does shape our behavior. But I want you to think today about conversion as a conversion, primarily not just a change in your behavior, but a change in your purpose and your vocation. And if we are converted, to God's purposes in the world, it will change our behavior. I teach at a university, but if I felt called or if I decided to go back to medical school and become a doctor, think about your life. Wouldn't your life radically change if you went back to medical school? Wouldn't your behavior change? It would have to. It also transforms our understanding of the world. Saul doesn't see these people of the way anymore as a threat to God, but he sees them as what God is actually doing. Ananias doesn't see Paul or Saul as a threat anymore. He actually begins to see him as God's instrument in the world. So when God calls us, he calls us, and by the way, I'm speaking to the church who, by the blood of Jesus, have been made pure and clean and whole and righteous. You, because of Jesus, are good people. But the church can still be converted. And I'm not talking about the kind of conversion of just moral behavior. I'm talking about a conversion in vocation. When we lived in Uganda, we did a project. It was called the Mavuli Project. And I'm going to step down here because I forgot my clicker. I'll show you guys a picture. I think it'll come up. Oops. Went the wrong way. Let's see if I can. This is a, this is a, a Mavule tree. Mavule trees are... A gift in Uganda. They're a hardwood. 
They're ginormous. That's a huge, I think, church building. So you can see how big this mavuli tree is. And they're really good for, they're really good for tables and chairs and furniture. In fact, our dining room table is made out of mavuli. But they don't grow uh, very easily. There used to be tons of them in this, the region of Uganda where we live, but deforestation, they're being cut down, and they don't grow very, they don't grow in forests, and they're really susceptible when they're seedlings uh, to goats eating them or getting run over. So they need a little care in their first year. So one of the projects that we did in the church uh, was we did a, a tree planting project, and we primarily did it through the churches. Now, this is a Mavule seedling. You see how, how small it is, and it made a great conversation to go out and talk to people about uh, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's literally the Mavule tree seed is like a mustard. It's like that small, and that's a little sapling, and it grows into this. Let me get it go backwards. It grows into that. But in the first year, it's really, really susceptible to, to death. But if you, if you can get it past the first year, it'll grow for 200 years. And it's not really good for wood until it's about 50 years old. So they're really planting trees for their children, what they're doing. So we would set it up to where it was very cheap to plant these trees and to have some economic development incentive. We would actually raise money from the United States. People like you would, could buy a mavule tree. We could GPS plant it so you know exactly where your tree is. And that money would go into account that would help the community that by the end of the year, they would get so much money, usually about $1,000, the entire community, and they would have to decide what they're going to use that money for to help the community. So the church would get together, and we said, this is, this is this for the community as well, so they get their community members together. And the church really, really wanted the money for themselves because they had projects they wanted to do. It's like, well, no, you have to include the whole community to be a part of the project. So it would never fail. The church would get together, and they're leading the meeting and all the communities together. And the church would say, mm, let's, we should do a pig project. Yes, the church would say, yes, let's do a pig project. It's like, hmm. Well, the only problem with that is that there were, they had Muslim neighbors. And the Muslims couldn't participate in the pig project. So... This is Abraham Malongo, my good friend. Abraham would often say, hmm, that's a good idea. But what, do you, what does the whole community think about that? Of course, the Muslims raise their hands like, well, we can't do that. And of course, the Christians knew what they were doing. The church knew what it was doing. It was trying to exclude their Muslim neighbors. And so over time, we had to slowly work with churches to get them to understand that when these projects came in, and this was the beautiful thing about this project for me, it wasn't so much as trees, as that that's a beautiful thing, or the economics, as that was, that was powerful in those communities, it was, it, was, it was good news, is that what it taught our churches over time is that while the churches wanted those projects and that money for itself, those projects taught the church that the church is not for herself. So much so that I was in Uganda just a few years ago, and it was at a meeting with the Mavule Project, and I wasn't even, it was, a, it was a village where I'd helped start the church, 
And, uh, but I didn't know a lot of the people that were there at that meeting because I had never met them. And the church was full of people. And at the end of the meeting, a woman stands up and she says, uh, in the local language, she says, I'm not a part of this church. I'm actually Muslim. And this is, today is my first day to step inside a church building. But I want to tell this church, people are asking me, why are you going to church? And I would tell them about what they're doing for our community. And they would ask, do they follow the same Jesus that all the other Christians follow? And she says, I just want to thank you because you're the first Christians that have come through here that allow Muslims to be a part of what you're doing. It's really blessing our children. The church is not for herself. This is a picture of my brother. Go to the next one. This is a picture of my brother, Adam. I told this story. Uh, I told this story in class. My brother joined our mission team along with the Manries. Adam and Mark were dear friends. Adam came as uh, a missionary, but he had a business background. And so he came to do kind of business as mission. So he worked with the Source Cafe. And he uh, actually was going up to Mount Elgon, which was between the border of Kenya and Uganda, to pick up raw coffee, which was one of the primary ways that the Source Cafe made income. And coming down off the mountain in a two-ton lorry with four tons of raw coffee on the back, the driver lost control. They went off a cliff on the mountain. They hit a tree on my brother's side, and my brother died. Many of you probably remember that story. But my brother was deciding to come to Uganda. He was working with a guy named Brent Abney, who was a part of this mission team. And Brent was a financial planner with Ameriprise, American Express Financial Planners. And he'd hired my brother up in Portland, Oregon. And my brother was doing really, really well and was getting to the point where they were inviting him in to buy into the practice. And he was about two or three years away from probably making a six-figure salary as a financial planner. But he went to Brent, who was a part of the practice. He was one of the, the co-owners of the practice. who had been a missionary in Uganda. He says, he's trying to struggle. He's like, my brother's in Uganda. I feel God calling me to Uganda, but I also feel my gifts and financial planning. And he was really struggling about what he should do. Until one day he walks into Brent's office and he says this. He says, if I stay in America and I'm a financial planner, I can help a lot of people. But in the end, all I'm doing is making a bunch of rich people richer. And after he said that, he packed up his bags and he moved to Uganda where he made less than $20,000 a year using all that financial planning experience to try to help the poorest of the poor. Here's what I want you to know about my brother. My brother knew that his life was not for himself. The church in South Korea, people have commented on its, 
expansion over the past hundred years. They've gone from Christianity barely being around to being the second largest mission-sending nation in the world. And they've made three observations about him. One, they live their faith openly with their neighbors. They live their faith, not obnoxiously, not in like a salesman kind of way. They just live their faith openly with their neighbors and invite people into the life they live. And the second thing is this, they spend time in the Word of God. I'm not suggesting we do this because I don't know if we get any takers, but it's a regular practice in South Korea for Christians to go to church every day of the week at 5 a.m. before they go to work. To spend time in prayer and to read Scripture. I, I don't do that. And here's the last thing they notice. They give their possessions to send missionaries around the world. Because like the churches that we did the Mubali Project, and like my brother, the church understands that the church is not for herself. You are not for yourself. And I think God is doing something in the world. And I think God is calling each and every one of us, like Saul, We're all good people. We're all good people by the blood of Jesus. But it's a conversion in vocation. And you don't have to go around the world. You don't have to go to Uganda. You don't have to go to Austria. You don't have to go to South Korea. But God is calling you to change your vocation, to look at the world differently, to use your gifts and talents differently. Because your gifts and talents are not for yourself. All the wisdom you've gained, all the knowledge, all the expertise, that's not for you. It's not even for your company. God is saying on the Damascus Road, I've got a different vocation for you. Instead of persecuting Christian Saul, why don't you come do this? Why don't you proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles? Instead of using all your gifts and talents just for your company or just for yourself, God says, I've got another idea for you. Why don't you use them in this way as well? And yes, your money is not for yourself. Your money is not for yourself. But God is calling his people, not only here at Vero Beach, but I think around the world, I think in the United States and around the world, and the church in South Korea has understood this, is that their life, their work, their relationships, their money is not for themselves. God is calling us today. It's Great Commission Sunday. He's calling for a conversion, a conversion in vocation. And it means you may have to act differently and see the world differently. But he's calling you because the church is not for herself. Let's stand and sing.